Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rose Heart Show. Hopefully we're live and everything's good. Um, apologies for being about, what, a minute late here or so. I had a little technical glitch getting it started, but hopefully we're gonna be good. Last week we had some Wi-Fi issues. Hopefully today we don't have those same issues. So when people jump on, when you get in here, just smash the like button or just get in the comments and say, hey Mike, it's working perfectly fine or hey Mike, it's not working. Just let me know either way. Uh, today I'm just feeling burnt out. I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling, um, I didn't feel like I got a great night's sleep. Um, just my brain was, was working too hard. I'm just going to spend the first couple of minutes here while people jump in. Hey, how you doing, Erica? Thank you for letting me know that it's all good. Cooper the Great, thank you also for jumping in the comments. Appreciate it. I want to talk a little bit before I do the live Q&A about being a yes man, about oversubscribing. Hello, Cindy. Hi. Oh, hey, Mike, it's working perfect. And Ellie says, hey, as well. Hey, good to see all you guys on here and I appreciate it. We're talking about uh, giving because I think it's an important piece of having a fulfilled life. Like you should be volunteering. You should be giving back. Even if it's not in an official capacity, just helping your neighbor, you know, helping people in your life, helping your family, whatever it is that you do to give back. It feels good and it's the right thing to do. It's good karma. I do a lot of it as of late and I take on way too much. People send me messages and they say, hey, could you help me with this? Or for instance, my mentee program, I help a lot of people through my mentorship program. I, I, I'm helping specific people live with me. I'm helping them do massive renovation projects and things like that. And uh, hi, Devendra. I'm like right on time. Awesome. Uh, I'm talking about burnout because today I was, I was making sort of a list of all the projects I have going on. And um, we have like a do half a dozen properties for sale right now, which is consuming probably like a couple of hours a week each property in time just in communicating with the agent that I'm working with co-listed on it and just in like preparing the properties for sale and dealing with the tenants and then I realized that you know I'd acquired a few properties and I the process of that was taking up a lot of time and, and then I was sort of documenting where all my time is going and you know it feels a lot like I have a full-time job right now despite being fire I'm involved in 15 different renovation projects in London and I'm doing helping people with floor plans and helping them through you know fine trades and providing people contacts and helping manage that and helping them do cost control. And that part is stressful. Like managing contractors is one of the worst jobs in the world. I can't think of a worse job. Um, even if someone paid me hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, I wouldn't want to do it. But and, and just grind them for price and like making sure the job stays on budget. That's a terrible job to be in. No one likes to do that. Um, but I've been doing a lot of that the last few weeks and it's really put a damper on my summer. And you know, I've got a couple of projects I've got to wrap up on the personal side too, or properties that I just had like sit for too long. I had a renovation going and a contractor walked away and I waited like six weeks to find another contractor. Just cause I had so much going on, I forgot about the fact that like my own property had almost no work being done on it. And it's just one of those things where if, you're, if you've got 15 or 20 renovations going at one time and you're basically GC for all of them and you're managing, you know, million other problems with your family and your friends and maybe you've got other business interests you're working on, like, you know, I don't know what it is that people are involved in, but I started making a tally of all the things that I do. And I'm like, geez, I'm taking on way too much. And the worst part of it is that when I look at where my time's going, I'm spending like two, three hours a day just on Instagram and Facebook Messenger. And that's something that like is just wasting a ton of time. When I look at like where my day is going, I'm super stressed out. I'm doing a couple building permits right now for duplex conversions. And I got like four or five of those applications I'm ironing out. And I do the drawings myself, right? And so I was doing the drawings today and I'm like, Geez, like just doing five different house floor plans is like 200 hours of work from start to finish, you know, with like me, the inspector. I'm like, geez, I've subscribed to 200 hours work in a couple of months. That's a full-time job, plus everything else that I had going on. And so I need to, you know, make that, I guess, conscious decision to say no. Like when someone brings me, it's been really hard for me. When someone brings me a deal and it's like, hey, Mike, it's $100,000 under market value, let's partner up. That's 50 grand that's my half, right? But that requires a lot of my time investment. And even if it requires no money, even if I could raise all the money, and oftentimes I do raise the money, so it requires none of my own money, it's the time investment in that that kills me. And um, it, some of these like some of these commitments I have are from a year ago. Like we bought properties two years ago, and a couple of the tenants are leaving, and I have to change the units over. So a lot of it just all happened at once, and it's just like I couldn't, I didn't have the systems in place to deal with you know, this many renovations at one given time. I've been enjoying, you know, a bit of the fire life earlier in the year and and now it's really all coming to a head. There's just so many things going on. So I just wanted to kind of air out, that's what's been going on with me today. And uh, it's been super stressful. So if you've been following me on Instagram, I'm like Rosehart, you'll know 
I've been sharing a little bit about what's been going on with that and I'm just sharing a little bit more now for those people who are struggling through I I feel it um, with you and it's a tough time to get through this and I think it's a little bit more tough for me now than it was maybe even three years ago. I, I shared on my Facebook today a three year ago post where I was walking through a unit that tents had trash. It was moldy. There was like alcohol bottles everywhere. That whole unit was a gut. And I'm looking back, that's three years ago. And on the same day, five years ago, there was another post that came out. I was doing the exact same thing. And geez, I quit my job over three years ago and I'm doing the same things. Like I'm, I've subscribed to and created a business or, or work effectively. And um, I don't know, I need to say no more. I guess the, the, the sort of underlying um, sort of conclusion, I guess you can call it, that I've come to is that I say yes too much. People ask me for help, I give them help. People ask me, hey Mike, can you just look at this deal? And I used to just do it all the time, like help people out. And I realized I have no time left for me, for my family, for proper sleep. And, and like I just, I subscribe to too much. And it's, once you've subscribed to something, if you're like me, you can't back away. Like I've had projects that were like, I'll give you an example. We have a project that went really, really badly south. And um, I don't want to get into it because I don't want to cause any issues, but like we had a foundation collapse and I wasn't the GC on the job. We hired a company, a legitimate company, like, you know, that does it all. And they outsourced it to another company and that company had the issue that they tried to do a French drain system, which is a bad idea on an old foundation. Should have waterproofed from the outside. But anyway, um, the moral of the story is I'm going to do this whole project for the last year and a half. We're going to basically rebuild this entire house. This is one of 15 projects I have going on. We're repouring the foundation. Uh, the homeless people broke in, cut all the, the wiring out of it, the plumbing, the gas lines, everything. Like we're basically rebuilding this house in the basement, um, like wall by wall. This is just one of like many projects that I have going on. And this one might be a full-time job for someone to, to you know, just be involved in, in doing something like this. But thankfully I have people I can sort of rely on to, to take care of things. But as an example, we will probably make no money on that project. So I will spend hundreds of hours to make zero dollars. Now, like a bad investor partner, like not me, might say, hey, this is unfortunate this happened. I'm walking away. There's no money in it for me, so buy and just like cut the losses. But a good investor partner or a good person in general would step up and say, hey, partner, I will take all the brunt of this and make this right. Even though it wasn't my fault, even though, you know, there's nothing I could do to control the fact that this happened. Uh, the contractor didn't have insurance. This is the whole thing. And it's one of those things where I'm just going to donate my time to fixing this. And like another example is like someone else reached out to me and they were going through a really hard time with their billing permits and I've helped them through that process. Another example of like just giving your time away. Um, it's good to do in moderation. And so that's sort of what I've concluded here is that it's good to realize and plan out when you say yes to something that might require you to do hundreds of hours of work you didn't expect to be a good person. And it's almost selfish to be fire when I guess you've given your word to someone, you have to honor that word. And so that's uh, something I've been noodling with and struggling with today, I guess. All right, let's see if there's any questions in the Q&A. Hey Chris, hey Anthony, hey Kim, hey Trevor, hey Harriet, hey Will. That wasn't my fault, but I'm a Canadian, so I'm not gonna leave you hanging. I don't know if it's about being a Canadian. I think it's just about being a good person. Like, if if I took on a job, no matter what it was, and in something went wrong, and you know, for whatever reason, I was I was involved in it. In many cases, you should almost step up, like, and just be the person that solves that issue. Like, as a realtor, even if I sold a house and I was involved in it going badly, most realtors would be like. I'm not liable to fix that. And they're not like legally, you know, the realtor is probably not liable, but a good realtor would step in and help their client and solve this problem for them. Most realtors say, sorry, I don't have any connections. Can't help you. Sorry. I can't manage that. But like a good, you know, realtor or a good person would step in and, and help, you know, with these types of situations. And I think that that's something that's missed in our society. The problem with doing that is you have no time. Like, if I wasn't blessed to have worked so hard since, you know, I was, I guess, 17, I wouldn't have the financial backing right now to be able to donate my time like I do today, right? And so I guess in some ways I'm thankful um, to have the opportunity to do that. But man, it's, it's stressful. Today I just, I need to just relax a little bit more. I need to be, oh, have a good evening tonight. I'm gonna take tonight off. I haven't eaten yet either. So that's been, I've been fasting. I had a late meal at like, a, what was it? one fifteen last night I ate and that was a mistake. It was just like a little ice cream. I was hungry, I felt for it. I'm like, oh, I know I shouldn't. But I went and I snacked 
And so now I have to fast to make up for that. I, you guys know I intermittent fast every day. It's one of the best things you can do for your health and your body. But uh, I, was, I guess my time to eat would have been around six something. But the Wise Wall show was happening. I was rushing back from a, a property site visit. I was just checking on the contractor work. You have to go to all your sites and check on things. Even if you're just like not even managing it. As the owner, you should go in and check in on your projects every week. And so if you have 15 projects going, you should be spending 20 hours a week just checking on the work. That's not coordinating it. That's not doing paying people. That's not doing anything else. That's just checking on the work, right? Um, but anyway, so I'm starving right now. I'm I'm not hangry, I wouldn't say, because I'm I'm in ketosis right now and I'm feeling like my body's burning on the on the ketones. So it's lasting energy. But geez, it's uh I'm gonna go with some water here because it's uh I'm a little dehydrated and a little hungry right now. So when this stream ends, I'm gonna eat. It's gonna be glorious. The first meal after your fast every day is just fantastic. I, uh, what is that? One to seven o'clock is, what does that put me at? Oh, it's 16 hours, isn't it? So I, I guess I'm, uh, I guess I'm actually at my normal fasting window at seven o'clock today. Jeez, because I ate so late last night. Uh, I don't get my 16 hours of fasting period until, until seven. So I'm gonna do a shorter window and try to eat le like one meal when I get done the stream and another meal maybe around 11 and then stop and then I can eat early. Like if I stop eating at 11, then I can eat by three o'clock to stay within my intermittent fasting window and for overall health. That's just, for me, it works well. I'm not even hungry in the morning, but in the afternoon, I really start to feel it. Okay, start on the top and work my way down. Anthony says, how do you get around CRA's five full-time employee requirement for an active business income on a mortgage lending business? Anthony, good question. Um, I don't have the deep information on what would be required for making it an active business. My thoughts would be if you're a mortgage broker and it was your job to, like you're a mortgage broker and you had an assistant, that'd be an active job. I don't know why you need five employees to be a mortgage broker. Like there are lots of mortgage brokers who it's, it's an active business. That's what they do as their profession. Um, it's not like passive income in any, any sense. And, and they have like a one assistant, right? So I think that'd be pretty feasible. Um, the other thing to do, you could do is just lend your money through a brokerage, in which case you just take it personally, all the, all that interest income. That'll be another option too, I guess, if you didn't want to have a company to do it. Um, but I don't know, I'm not a tax professional. If someone wants to to jump in the comments about how that would work. I know with a flipping company, as an example, if you flipped real estate, that's an active business. Flipping real estate counts as the active uh, business tax rate. So you don't need the five employees to flip real estate. To hold real estate, that's passive income, in which case you need the five full-time employees. Um, but yeah, I guess it's not as hard as you might think to get five employees. You can kind of maybe work some system out with a, a partner, you know, get a couple partners together who all wanna to lend together maybe. And you guys could hire some some admin staff to administrate all of that. And like an admin staff's what, 20 grand a year? Something to that effect for a full-time admin staff. And so, you know, if you had a few friends get together, you could form sort of like a, I guess a lending corp. And then together you'd all be in the preferred um, rate, but you'd still have to lend your funds, I guess, into the corp and then from the corp to whoever you're lending to. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not a tax professional on that one, so I, I don't have a good answer, but um, there must be a creative solution. Chris says, renovation question. Is hardwood over laminate flooring make a difference in resale value? Chris, it depends. Uh, in almost all cases, I would say in London, Ontario, hardwood flooring is better than laminate. In almost all cases. There are some exceptions to that rule where hardwood would not be desirable in certain places. Um, as an example, in basements, hardwood's a thicker product that you need to kind of put on a subfloor. So you'd lose some height in the basement, in which case it could make sense to not do that. You'd probably just want to do like a vinyl plank because it's thinner and it's water resistant, whereas uh, like a hardwood floor isn't, right? It's not water resistant. If you get water in it, it will bubble and be ruined. That's the, the challenge of hardwood. So I've never hardwood in wet areas. But in the higher end price point, certainly hardwood is expected. Like in a million dollar house, if you put laminate in, it's almost like, it feels like you didn't go all the way. You kind of cheaped out. And so laminates looked at as, there are really nice laminates by the way, but it's typically looked at as a lower grade than hardwood. So it makes more sense to do a hardwood in a higher end flip in your like your living room or maybe in some some bedrooms. Typically what I would do is if it was a high end flip in the living room, I might do a nice hardwood, I might do a tile when you come in and into the kitchen and then in the bedrooms I might do carpet. And that's a high end, like that'd be a high end finish you could do. Um, whereas maybe a laminate would seem be more seen as like a rental item or like a, a lower quality product, the 
type renovation. So does it affect resale value? Most definitely. Hardwoods are more expensive to install. They are more expensive in general uh, for both labor and material. And on a resale perspective, they are more. Your insurance will be a little bit higher because they'll factor in the cost to replace that. And it, it does have an effect. Not always, but it does usually have an effect. All other things considered equal, it would be a slightly better house if it was done in hardwood. Next question. Uh, Trevor says 20 renovations at once doesn't sound fun. Isn't the point of fire that you bought back your time? Yeah, Trevor, exactly. Um, it's one of those things where like, I'm outsourcing as much as I possibly can, but the problem I have is I'll bring in a GC company that will charge like $70,000 to, to turn around a, like a house that students trash a house. And I bring someone in, it's like 70 grand to redo the whole house. I can sub it out for like 15 or 20. And so the, the frugal in me is like, I know I have my portfolio managed by someone else. I know I could bring in a contractor and just pay him one check and a couple deposits and I would never have to check on the property. I should still check on the property, but I'd never have to check on the property. But the frugal in me is like, ah, me and my partner are like, ah, I'll just, I'll sub it out. And so I keep stepping in and taking on workload and bringing myself out of fire, out of early retirement. Though I could be fired, though I am by definition able to, I'm not because I keep stepping in to try to save my partner cost in a lot of cases. And so that's something that I wrestle with. Um, I guess the fire answer would be hire the guy for 60 or 70 grand, build into the numbers. If it isn't profitable, sell the property because then real estate without my involvement, if it generates less than private lending, I shouldn't have the property and I should just sell it, right? So it should be a simple analysis and there should be nothing more to it than that. But unfortunately, there are more qualitative factors. And one of them is that I have trouble um, overpaying. And overpaying will get me the result that I want. It will get me no involvement at all, but I have to pay a really expensive premium for that. Now I'm sure there's someone out there that's in between in London, Ontario. And if you have that recommendation of that contractor who buys their own materials, who does their own designs, who does everything, and they're reasonably priced, like they can literally do plumbing, electrical, all of it from start to finish. If you have those people, send those contacts to me. I would love that. I have my gross heart on Instagram. Um, I don't have that many projects going anymore, so I only have the one-off odd project where I need them. But my partners, like my mentees, all have a couple of renovations going, and they all, they're always looking for contractors. And it's one of those things where it's tough to find in this market good contractors. There's so many con artists and so many contractors who come in and just don't care. That's a challenge. It's like they'll just it's stupid things. Like when they're framing, they just miss something. And only an owner would care, but they just they just don't. And so you gotta walk behind them, it feels like, uh, unless you hire someone to walk behind them. And so, yeah, I guess the point is, if you've, like me, last year bought 50 properties or got involved in 50 projects, even though you retire and you don't buy any more, there's still a backlash of getting rid of all those properties, of you know, getting them ready for sale, et cetera, and so forth. So my commitments two years ago in a different state of mind still affect me today. My word that I gave two, three years ago to an investor partner still holds true today. Even though I'm fire, I can't walk away from my word. I said that I would see this property through to finish, to sale and maximize profit for that investor. And even though I don't wanna do it, even though I can afford to not do it, I don't wanna screw my partner over. So that's, what's, that's the issue with these 15 projects for the most part is me just honoring my word from years ago. And someone might argue like, hey, you gave your word to your employer. Do you stay in a job you hate? because you gave your word to your employer that you'd work for them? Well, no, you can quit and move on and do your own thing and be selfish. But yeah, I guess that's, that's something I'm, I'm wrestling with. I, I just can't do that. I'm not willing to walk away from the guy that I said that I would be. And so it sucks. It sucks managing all these projects and helping all these investors and getting all these properties sold. But I have to honor my word from 2017 and 2018 when we bought a lot of these properties. If we're going to sell, I have to make sure we get maximum value. And if a property's been destroyed by tenants, we have to re-renovate it. And so in some cases that's 10, 20 grand, whatever. I gotta manage all that and keep costs down. That's my word. And so, yeah, I wish I could explain to all my investors, hey, I'm fire now. Um, I don't wanna do it. Gave my word, but sorry. Like, no, it's just not, that's not me. That might be other people, but that's not me. Um, yeah. Good question though. Good question. Makes me feel good to vent. So, yeah. Don't hold any of this against me, guys. I'm just venting. How long does a duplex conversion process take in London, Ontario? So through COVID, it may take you a full year from start to finish. 
Um, I know people tried to send in applications in March and things kind of got delayed. A lot of the applications are being reviewed now. So if you might've set an application in March, you might not get a response for 15, 20 business days, uh, which means like a month. And then if they have any issues with your drawings, they might come back to you and make some modifications. Or if you've asked for any special allowances, that might take another month or two. If there's any minor variances involved, that'll take like four to six months more to get a, basically to get a, a hearing right now. Um, so it may, if you have parking issues or some restriction that you need to get a minor variance for on your duplex conversion, um, or your secondary dwelling unit, depends on how you wanna do it. Secondary dwelling unit is much preferred, it's much easier. But my thoughts are, it can take, you know, and then the renovation could take any, like up to three months, especially with inspections involved and delays associated with different subtrades coming in. It could take six months or a year to legally convert. Now, most of the guys you follow on social media probably that are doing this, you are doing all these flips, a lot of them do it, you know, without permits and stuff, and that's how they get it done so quickly. Um, that's a no-no. Like I like to follow the, the permit process. Um, on a few occasions, it can make sense where if you're just doing kitchen cabinets or painting your floors, like flooring or changing out a kitchen cabinet, that doesn't require permits. So let me get into structural stuff. Um, like when you start removing drywall, in fact, you can remove some drywall without permits as long as it's not fire separating. But if you got into insulation or you know any framing or stuff like that, then it can require permits. And let's be clear here, it takes probably 10 to 15 business days just to get drawings done right? You can't even apply for a permit until you've got your drawings done. You've got everything figured out. You've made your plan of attack. You filled all the paperwork. You've submitted that. Then it's 10 to 15 business days for the city to respond in most cases. And they're always backed up. So call it 20 business days, which is a full month. 20 business days is four weeks. So you're looking at like seven, eight weeks. You can't even start demolition until the permit's granted. So legally speaking, if you were to do this properly um, and follow all the, the I, like cross all your T's and dot all your I's, then you'd be a couple of months typically before even starting work. And there's a series of inspections along the way that you have to meet. So it could take you four or five months. Um, you know, if you really hustled, you get done in three, four months. But yeah, it's unfortunate. You can't even apply for the permit until the property's in your name. So it's one of those things where you really are at the mercy until you close and there's, there's gonna be some holding costs to turn that property around, legally speaking. Now, people do whatever they want. If you buy an existing duplex, that's probably a lot easier to make legal. So if you're making an existing duplex legal, that's a lot less work than creating a duplex, right? So it depends on the context, I guess. You could do it a lot faster if you had an existing duplex. You said to maybe add some fire sprinklers and some interconnected smoke alarms and you know maybe some modifications to the fire separation. That may not take as long. You're still dealing with the 10 to 15 days for drawings, 10 to 15 business days for the drawings to be done, probably another five business days to get everything you know, to the city, and then probably another 10 or 15 business days for them to respond minimum. Um, so yeah, you're looking at like 30, 40 business days, which is like two, three months minimum just to, and then you gotta do the work uh, associated to actually get it uh, legal. So yeah, it's, it's not a quick process. Real estate investing is not passive, period. If you make real estate investing completely passive, as in you don't do any uh, managing of sub trades at a site, you've got a general contractor who's managing all of the contractors and you've got property management in place and all of the other things. What you'll find in most cases is if it's completely passive, the return on investment is like 15%, roughly, give or take. That's roughly what you can get with private lending. So real estate investing, not that profitable if actually made passive. The way it becomes profitable is if you invest your time and your expertise, which most fire people probably don't wanna do. Um, there's some that are fine with that. They like the part-time real estate gig and it's, a, it's better than a job. Like there's no doubt about it, but it's not the end goal, right? Like I eventually want to have very little involvement in my real estate portfolio. And I'm okay with the fact that it won't cash flow very well. The return on investment might be 15, 16% on my portfolio if it's completely outsourced. Now I can't do that to a lot of my investors because I promised them certain returns two, three years ago. I promised them I would help them, right? So I'm in this situation where I wish I could be more passive than I am now. And it's mostly because I don't want to spend their money. I want to try to you know, help as much as I can to keep costs down and keep the project moving forward. Um, so. I do a lot of volunteer work in that way, both through the education space and through helping people who I promised, you know, could get a good return. These are people who are like, you know, your average investor just trying to reach early retirement, right? I don't want to let them down. I want them to get the best return that they can. And so, yeah, it sucks, but such is life. Next question. Why not use general contractors? How reduces the RO as a result of using a GC on average? I don't know, Harriet. Like, it depends on the GC that you're using. Right now, trades are in such a strong demand that 
to find a contractor right now who's available in the next six weeks, they're probably not good. Like if they're available to take your project on in the next six weeks, so you get a property and they're available the next month and a half or two months, they're probably not a good contractor to begin with. So you're gonna, if that means if you're not a good contractor, because there's three things that matter, right? When you're looking at a, I guess any contracting company, there's the triangle, right? You guys probably heard of this. Reliability at the top, if they're reliable, their quality of work and their affordability. You can never have all three is what they say. You basically, if you want really good reliability, they show up to site every day, they're not on drugs, they're doing you know, good quality of work, the way you want it, fast, etc. cetera, uh, then you're gonna have to pay for that. It's gonna be very expensive. So how expensive is that? It depends. Right now, because there's so much demand for contractor uh, and trade, I guess, skill set and just labor that you've got to pay a premium. Like some, in some cases, I've seen that the general contractors are marking up their sub trades 200%, 100%. And the sub trades are 100% more expensive than they were even a couple of years ago. Things have gotten crazy. So it's just one of those things where, um, I, let's I'll give you an example. So I'll give you an example. Pasta, please. Thank you, Jonas. Oh, I'm gonna be able to break my fast to a nice meal of steak. Thank you, buddy. My mentees just jumped in the chat. That makes me feel really good. Um, I've lost my train of thought now because I'm so hungry. Um, I think we were talking about breaking down cost on construction. Oh yes, I remember now. So using an example, I could get a, a bathroom roughed in with like a, a plumber that I know for like $1,500 in most cases. And that's if I bring him material, like I have someone bring him the material. So 1,500 bucks, and I have someone finish it for like 1,500 bucks, typically, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 bucks. If I get like a guy that I know is a $30 an hour guy, who I have to micro, like I have to text him most days, there's communication going on, I have to, you know, babysit him a little bit. Now he's pretty good, knows what he's doing, but I still gotta babysit him a little bit. Not like a general contractor going to site to make sure the plans are followed. I have to go to site and do that, make sure plans are followed, et cetera. Now, it's pretty easy because I'm not doing the work myself. I'm just managing the work. But it's a lot of work. Like, managing the work can be a lot of work. So I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's no work at all. But that, let's say, I get, I, I've had bathrooms installed for like three to four grand with tile everything done. Like, I put in a washroom um, where there wasn't one before. Now, I had a general contractor quote me $19,000 to do that same job. And then I went and did it myself for under five. So that's an example of how much markup can exist. The reason it's so much more for the general contractor is he doesn't have a $30 an hour guy. He's got a $60 an hour guy who's super reliable, who is like super great that he loves to work with, who's, and there's something called, um, I guess, contractor uh, price creep. Over time, contractors charge you more and more and more. It's just the nature of contractors. Their first job they do for you is always cheaper than the next job. And eventually they get out of control where they try to milk you for as much profit as they possibly can. Um, and so this is what happens to the GCs. They're using contractors all the time. They've got to pay them a really good wage to get them to keep coming back. And so the general contractor often is spending like eight or nine grand and getting materials and all the stress associated. He's marking it up 100% for his time to go materials and manage it and whatever. And it's a tough job. It's, it is it's a lot of work to manage it all. And he's not grinding the trades the way I would grind the trades, but that's because he's in, in this business for the long term. He's not trying to squeeze out like five cheap renovations and then the contractor's gonna move on to a more juicy job, right? He's trying to just, he's trying to provide that juicy job to keep the contractors coming back. And I guess the downside of being the investor on that is like, you're gonna pay a lot more. And at $19,000 for a bathroom to be installed, and this was like a really nice bathroom, by the way, but like installing a, a bathroom where one didn't exist, like turning a living room into a bathroom. And I guess my thought was $19,000, I didn't even get that back. Like if I spend $19,000 in this washroom with this general contractor, it'll add 10 or 15,000 in value. So as a real estate investor, I don't even wanna spend $19,000. So it's like, to hire the GC sometimes costs more than the value that it adds, so don't even do the renovation at all, period. The reason I make so much money in real estate, or I used to make so much money in real estate doing this, was that I could get the renovation done for five, and it would add 10 or 15,000 in value. So we'd make the $10,000 difference because I was able to find materials costs really cheap myself or you know, hire someone to go pick them up, but I would buy them myself and look for the sale price. And in many cases, I could find a shower base for 200 bucks on clearance. He goes into Home Depot and spends a thousand on like the nicey flashy model that's full price. He's not focused on cost control the way I was, right? And so I'm just better at the job than the GC, I guess. And so, yeah, that's, that's sometimes it doesn't make sense to bring the GC in at all. It makes sense to not even do the renovation, which is, I guess some contractors don't understand that. They're like, hey, you're adding so much value to this property. And it's like, if I pay you $70,000 to renovate my house and then I'll add bedrooms and bathrooms or add a, let's call it a duplex conversion, 70 grand if I pay a contractor 
In some cases, that $70,000 is more than the value you're gonna get back. So you asked me, what is, does it make sense economically, I guess, is, is the underlying point, to hire a GC and be completely passive. And in some cases, in many cases, if you bought a property, understand nothing about construction, and then hire a really expensive, but really good quality and really good reliability contractor to go in and do the work, you may end up with not a burr at all, but a property in which you invested 70 grand and you got 70 grand back in value add. And so you've made nothing. You didn't have to do any work, but you made no money. In which case, what was the point? You might as well just buy a turnkey duplex. And in many cases, that's what I see the numbers supporting. For those people who don't wanna be involved, who don't understand construction, it's better to buy the turnkey property, especially in this market. People are overpaying for garbage. And the turnkey stuff is actually, in some cases, trading for good discounts. Everyone's looking for the burr. Everyone's looking for the property that, you know, they can add value to and, and make money by doing what I was doing, which is finding material costs cheap and bringing in cheap subtrades and organizing all the different subtrades to come in in different times, right? Like a drywaller and a mudder and taper and a framer and an electrician and a plumber. And you got a trim guy coming in and whatever and a flooring guy and you got different guys doing all these different tasks. We got to manage 15 people to get the job done. Um, so I guess people want to do that job because you can make good money. If you have five, six, seven renovations like that going and you're managing them all yourself, you could theoretically make two, $300,000 in a year in value created in capital gains in your, in your properties, right? Those are burrs. And so that's in such demand because people like myself and Matt and everyone else on YouTube talking about these burrs that the turnkey properties, believe it or not, are actually selling at discounts. I've seen some turnkey properties that compared to a, a fixer upper, I've seen the cost to fix the property up be so underestimated that it's actually better to buy the turnkey property than it is to buy the property that um, I guess needs all that work, especially if you factor in your time. But just crazy, some deals you can find out there. Um, yeah. Okay, next question. By the way, thank you for the 47 people watching right now. Smash the like button and leave me a comment. I'd appreciate it. You should read The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. It's a short story, maybe 15 pages. It will change your whole perspective on giving too much. Hmm. Can someone, Will, can you do me a favor? Cause I'm gonna forget this after the stream, but could you just Instagram me at Mike Rosart, the happy prince? I'll check it out tonight. Uh, if you just, if someone just Instagrams me that, uh, I'll remember and then I'll, I'll take a look. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, I appreciate the comment. Uh, Cindy says, do you know anything about starting a t-shirt business online, like making a website or outsourcing? My friend's business is really taking off, so I wanna help her set up a website. Um, I have friends who are in that space who resell things or order them from China and then customize them in some way and then sell them again on Amazon or on um, uh, Shopify. They're having varied levels of success. I have some who have had no success with it and tried it and failed. And I've had some friends who are like doing really, really well with it. And so it, what's my personal experience? I, again, I've, I have owned companies that sell things on Amazon. Um, we mostly created our own products at the time. And so I didn't really do the resale thing. I've not been involved in that really at all. Um, yeah, I wish I could kind of lean in and give you a ton of advice there. It's not my specialty. I've talked to friends about it. I've understood their business model. Uh, the biggest thing I think you could look for is keeping your, your costs in, in line, keep them, you know, as low as you possibly can, and then focus on getting a you know, good profit margin for yourself. That's the biggest thing. The friends who failed had poor profit margins and the other friends who failed uh, they gave up before their product had traction. And so make sure you wait until you've had, you know, enough market exposure that you can actually you know, get the results or reap the results of all of the, the work that you're putting in. Because marketing can take years to build up a brand if you're trying to sell a product like a, a t-shirt, you know, type, you know, I guess brand or whatever. That would take time to build that up. So uh, helping them with the website, I, I've built websites before, um, just like my personal blog and, and messed around a little bit with websites. But again, not a specialist there. I use like the, uh, the Wix or the, um, there's like WordPress um, free sites you can use to just build your own. Like it's pretty easy to use. I, I didn't code it. I just use one of those sites to design my website. So yeah, that sounds cool. You could definitely help your friend with that. And uh, I wish I could provide more assistance there. From a general business perspective, again, like I'm a, I'm a business graduate, so I can provide like business advice, I suppose, if you ask targeted questions. But uh that's all I got for you. Um, yeah, I guess, did I miss any of those questions? You said outsourcing. No, I, if you're talking about drop shipping, we did have a warehouse for a medical business where we um, stored a lot of our products. And the beautiful thing about outsourcing and drop shipping is 
really you don't do a lot of the work. You just kind of coordinate between the customer and I guess the, the product, right? You just kind of get into the warehouse and that's it. It's pretty easy to manage. Um, and then do you have property managers? Yes, I do uh, have property managers. I have three property managers that I use, three different companies. I found challenges with using just one. Um, so I don't wanna be reliant on any one, but um, none of them are ever perfect. It's one of those things where they all have their weaknesses. There's sort of three things that, I just said this on Instagram a little while ago, but it was, you know, um, I guess it's sort of relevant now and I'll bring it up. but. There's sort of three things that are like, a, I guess I like to make triangles, so I'm gonna make another triangle. But this is for property management. And the first one is the tenant placing, so leasing and, and being able to place good tenants. The next one is like actual maintenance work and being able to, to do maintenance at a reasonable billable rate. Because a lot of the property management companies mark stuff up like crazy and they use the really expensive reliances of the world and they get a furnace fix for $180 service call and a plumbing fix for $150 service call. When like a good property manager can find a plumber for 30 bucks an hour who they pay to just go out, like a, a handyman dude who's like 30 bucks an hour, just pay him 50, 60 bucks and he'll go and swap a toilet out. There's lots of those guys all over the place that want to do that kind of work, who want to just go fix a leak. Let's say you had a dripping, a dripping lever, they could just, you know, go and tighten it up for like 30 bucks and instead of calling someone for 200 bucks to do it. And it's, it's understanding of construction knowledge, I guess, is the, the maintenance and renovations. Um, that, so there's the leasing, right? Which is like the sales aspect of it. Can you sell that unit for top dollar? Can you get it rented quickly? A lot of the companies take months to rent properties out. They're not good at marketing. They've got dozens of units. So they don't focus the attention on your property. And so they're not good at the leasing or they're not good at the maintenance or I find they're not good with like the uh, paperwork side, the administrative side, the rent collection, the serving the notices, the landlord tenant board. So there's sort of like three, a pyramid of things and I've never found a company that's good at all three and affordable. That's, I guess, the piece. That's like the, being good at all three means you're affordable at all three as well, right? Like if you're higher, if you're great at maintenance, but you hire the reliances of the world and like the expensive, like Winmar company, like all that, if you hire the expensive companies, the landlord can't make any money. Um, in which case, you might as well just sell the properties off. It doesn't make sense to hold them properties and use really expensive management that uses really expensive uh, contractors because there's just no profit there. You've got to really run it lean or else there isn't a whole lot of profit. What you end up getting is like a 15 or 16% return on your invested capital. If you put 20% down, if you put more down, it's even worse return. If you own your property in cash, it's even worse return. But um, yeah, like you want to look at the ROI. That's the most important piece. And if your property run this way, outsourced entirely, doesn't produce the ROI and in London, for the most part, it won't unless you find good management. Uh, it doesn't make sense to own the real estate. So yeah, it's sort of in my conclusion. I'm still looking for a really good management. Uh, you know, what I would love, I think the ideal property manager for myself would be a small time, like mom and pop with one or two employees. I always find the bigger the company gets, the more telephone tag. So they're telling what someone else was telling someone else was telling someone else. Ideally, it's like a two person operation and one person really understands like construction is like a retired contractor who just enjoys, wants to make like 60 grand a year, have a good lifestyle, semi-retirement, wants to manage 10 or 20 properties. That's perfect. If you overload someone with 100 units or 200 units, there's just too much to do. So the administrative paperwork falls behind. They don't have time to serve notices. They don't have time to deal with all the problems in the properties. They can't keep up on the maintenance schedules. They can't keep up with turning the units over. And so I've found the most success with the small companies. The big companies, they tend to have so many different moving hands that the administrative staff doesn't talk to the tenant person, doesn't talk to the communicative uh, whatever, doesn't talk to the maintenance person. There's just so much tag going around. You're talking to people twice and three times and four times. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. And the result is less profit for you and less of a passive, uh, I guess, product. Especially a fast growing property management company, that scares me too. So fast growing property management companies, because it's really hard to grow by the way. Hiring new staff is very hard. Whenever a property manager says they're hiring new staff, that's a red flag because uh, the new staff isn't going to care the same as much as the owner. So I always like to deal directly with the person managing my property. That's what I look for is the mom and pop and you don't want to overload them and give them too much. So that's my thoughts on property management and property managers. And if someone knows someone like that, um, I, I would love to find like a, a maintenance guy like that who understands that like a, they could do their own maintenance as an example. A toilet's got an issue and it's like, 50 bucks to fix it as opposed to calling an expensive, you know, plumbing company that's 200, 300 bucks. Cause there's no way 
that you're going to be able to make any money. So that's what I'd be looking for if I was looking for a property management company. Buffett advocates a good and honest business partner. I 100% agree. He says it is one of the most underrated aspects of being successful. True. That is very true, Trevor, and very good comment and very insightful. I've had both good and business, good and bad business partners, and I can say being on the other side of a bad business partnership, it sucks when you have a business partner who isn't putting an equal amount of time as you are, as you are or who is maybe siphoning some funds. I hadn't, this is a long time ago, almost a decade ago, but I had a, a hood cleaning business and that was kind of what happened. Um, there was some stealing, some theft going on. They were stealing checks and cleaning them in their own account and just a whole bunch of stuff going on that wasn't great. And being on the other side of that, I was like, I will never be that person. I just, I don't know how people, I don't know how people do it, how people screw people. Um, be transparent and be honest and be fair. Um, and if, if you don't want to do the business anymore, then find the amicable solution to end it as opposed to just ghosting the person or stealing from them and ending the relationship. So it's, it's tough. Business partnerships are so tough. That's so true. Um, it's one of the leading, I guess, causes of a successful business is good partners. Next question. Mike, what's your outlook for the real estate market here in London going forward? It's kind of getting out of control. Please give me your views. Yeah, I think in all of Southwestern Ontario, real estate prices are getting out of control. Uh, the fundamentals don't line up to what we're seeing in the field. So I think prices are up 20% on average uh, in like many areas in Toronto, London, all around. And we, that's from like last year, July to now. Um, that's messed up. Like the market shouldn't support 20%. Wages have not gone up 20%. The only catalyst, I guess, and by the way, a lot of people have lost their jobs. The economy is not doing that well. Uh, it has been majorly affected. GDP is way down. There's a lot of things that are negative factors, but guess what happened? The government printed a ton of money. Basically, quantitative easing and lower interest rates is effectively stimulating people to go out and buy. Interest rates have dropped 25%. So the same mortgage payment is 25% cheaper oh, from an interest payment perspective. So house prices went up proportionally. Everyone's like, hey, that $750,000 house, it costs the same mortgage payment as the $500,000 house uh, used to. So now I might as well get a $750,000 house. I can afford to pay more because everyone can afford to pay more. Sorry, hit the table. Because everyone can afford to pay more, guess what happens? Bidding wars and prices go up. And so is that sustainable? Um, I don't know. I'm not extremely bullish about buying right now uh, unless it's under value significantly. So... I think we're in need of a correction. I think when interest rates come back, we're going to see maybe the prices will stick a little bit at like a 10% growth, but I think 20% is just too much. So that's my opinion. I don't know. I've been saying since 2018 though, that the market was out of control and a little too hot. I like to see a real estate market that looks like this, uh, which by the way is a slight positive curve. This is flat. I like this, right? This is what it's been looking like, right? Like it's kind of like arcing like this right now. That's kind of messed up. Uh, that curve is not sustainable. So yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. And I've done a whole video series on some demographic trends. By the way, immigration way down because of COVID. We're having a lot of issues where it doesn't make sense. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The market keeps chugging along. Good time to sell. How much should they be paid? Oh, I missed that question. Okay. I don't know what's that related to, but how much should they be paid like by service or by hour? So Cindy, I, I don't know. Um, oh, maybe you're relating. I think you're the question. It was property management. Let me scroll up. Okay. Yeah. You're talking about property managers. So I found that when you pay someone hourly, they have no hustle. Like why would they push themselves? They'll just take their time, milk it, get as much as they can per hour on average is what you see. Job price They'll go really fast because they just want to get through this job as quick as they can. But their quality might be terrible because they're rushing. They'll hide it if they can and put some drywall over the issue because they're getting paid a job price. The other issue is, I guess, with, and there's fee-based as well. So percentage of rents is another way that people collect. Um, but I guess hourly job price, salary, which is kind of like hourly. Um, and then there's sort of percentage of profit. That's my favorite one. I love, and I hired a contractor once this way, I love to share in the profit. Like, depending on the value of the appraisal when we're done this work, I will give you a payout, a percentage of say 30 or 40% of profit. I much prefer that. And the good news is a good contractor can make double or triple their rate. 
but then there's no risk for the investor. So that's my favorite way to hire contractors to say, hey, you can have 30% of profit at the end and you do have a contract. And it's like, hey, I'm gonna advance you nothing. You're gonna cover this. And when it's done, we will refinance and you can, you can put a loan, a lien on title if you want, whatever you want. And when it's done, we'll get it repraised and whatever the value is, less the costs, all that profit will be split between us. And that way it's a win-win. And if they actually suck and the costs get out of control, there's no profit for anyone. The contractor worked for free. So they pay for, that's the true and honest best way, pay for performance. And that's what I love. That's my favorite way. Almost no contractors will work this way. They like to make their guaranteed hourly, their guaranteed job price. If the scope of work changes in any way, they will up their job price. So I get it, everyone's gotta eat. So there are some really good contractors though that do it this way, that profit share and they JV and they do flips and stuff and they make a killing, but they're good at what they do. And so I guess if the contractor's good, they should go that way. Uh, but yeah, hopefully that helps you. Depending on the situation, would you consider selling a property to tax lost harvest? Yes, definitely. There's been situations where this year I'm going to have to sell a property off and uh, I'm actually really thankful that it's a loss. We spent so much renting this property. We made a lot of rental income, but now the loss, we get a little bit of capital gain offset. I'm excited for that. What tactics do you use to find deals? Wholesaler network, Kijiji, FSBO, driving for dollars. Harriet, all of those things. And I've talked about it tons in my videos here, but um, for the most part, networking has been my number one, uh, I guess, factor for success. Like I've networked in with a lot of wholesalers who wholesale me deals. Uh, I've networked in with a lot of realtors who will send me pocket listings. I've networked in with people who just want to sell properties or have a property or two. Investors reach out to me through social media. And that's been one big way is like, people know me as the real estate investor in London, Ontario. And so they'll reach out and be like, hey Mike, what's my property worth? And I'll give them comps and they'll be like, oh, well I have to pay a realtor 5% and like whatever else. Do you just want to buy it privately? I want to work something out? And so there's been situations where it's made sense to do that or I've been able to connect someone to a buyer. But uh, yeah, I don't do a lot of the door knocking or anything like that anymore. For my own personal primary residence, I might do it, but it's terrible dollars per hour. So I'm just not interested in that. Hey Quentin, good to see you on. Funny today to see that Ontario is officially in a recession. Let's scroll down one line and the headline says the stock market had the strongest closing bell in a while. Weird times. That's a great observation. We are by definition in a recession. Um, GDP is not doing well. Um, it's down. Overall, all of the economic indicators like unemployment, uh, average income, all of this is down in most sectors. Most businesses are in huge decline. A lot of them are 20, 30% less revenue than they've had in previous years. A lot of people are still on CERB and still on all these, uh, I guess, government programs. And yeah, and our market's roaring hot. Jay says, paying three times monthly rent payment, which has reduced my 28 year mortgage to four years. Is this the best thing to pay off the mortgage or should I reduce my mortgage payment and put towards a mutual fund? Uh, Jay, I'm not a big fan of mutual funds in general because the management expense ratio fees are so high. ETFs are a better alternative with a lower MER. But I will say, do not pay off my, my thought is I never pay off a mortgage ever. It's my personal thought. Um, paying down a mortgage guarantees your two or 3% return. A two or 3% return is barely inflation. It's disgusting. Uh, you don't want to pay off your mortgage. You want to refinance the money out from your mortgage and put it to work somewhere else. Buy another property, you lend it out to someone, buy stocks, whatever. But all of those things on average, stocks, lending, real estate, businesses, whatever you want to buy, all of it on average returns a better return than 3%. So if your mortgage rate is less than 5%, don't pay off your mortgage. Borrow as much as you possibly can and go invest it elsewhere because you'll make the difference between what you can get, so you can get a 10% return elsewhere and a 3% is your cost of your mortgage. You're making 7% spread and paying your mortgage with the profit. So don't put your money towards the mortgage, that's my thought. Alex says, hey Mike, are you retired? Alex, I'm like Michael Jordan, um, I believe I can fly. No, um, I'm like Michael Jordan and just like him, I go in and out of retirement all the time. You know, you guys know he was like in basketball, baseball, right? he's an actor, he's just been doing so many things in his life. And that's how I feel my journey has been is I'm in and out. I go through periods where I don't do anything for a long time or I focus on family or I focus on a personal project that I'm extremely passionate about. And then other times, like right now, uh, it was better earlier in the year, but this summer has been terrible because just, by bad luck, a few tenants moved out of a few properties and I bought a few properties 
and a few investors, just a whole bunch of things happened at once that I had a whole bunch of projects all happen at once. I didn't expect all these tenants to move out. I didn't expect what happened to happen. And a lot of work all happened at once. And I, I made, I made commitments two years ago that are like, for some reason coming due right now, when I promised something two years ago, it's all happening right now. It's, it doesn't feel like I'm retired, but I guess I don't have a job and I don't have to do it. I'm choosing to do it. So I guess by that definition, I'm financially free and I don't, like when you don't have to do something for the money, it's a choice, then I, I would consider that a version of fire. So by that definition, I'm still fire, but am I, you know, retired early the way I'd like to be? No. Check back with me in the fall when all these projects are finishing up and I'll be feeling much, much better. What are other assets you're invested in? So you guys know I have four pillars. I talk about it like a million times in my streams, but I believe in investing in public equities, so stocks. I believe in investing in real estate, levered, so with a mortgage, uh, five to one ideally, if not better. I believe, so that's two of the asset classes that I like, three private businesses. So that's buying individual private companies or investing in them in some way, and four private lending. So providing first mortgages for other people against real estate assets. That's my favorite, it's the safest form of investing. I also would do lending against businesses with a general security uh, against the business, but it is a bit more risky. I prefer to see some personal uh, equity put up to guarantee my investment. So those are the four ways that I would prefer to have asset classes that I, that I like. Um, there probably are some other types of asset classes, but those are the four that I can think of. Probably everything else fits into those four in some shape or form. I guess under the debt category of lending, you can consider bonds there, but I hate bonds. Bonds provide terrible returns. So I have a zero bond allocation. Uh, I don't believe in bonds. I believe in a mortgage, 70% loan to value at 12%, as opposed to a bond paying 5% that's security against a company that's high risk. With real estate, I can take the property and there's still 30% equity there. So if I sell it for 70 cents on the dollar, I still got my money back, 100%, I've lost nothing. So the, the way to, it's really hard to lose money with private lending as opposed, if you do it right, as opposed with bonds, um, there is just not enough risk to reward. And that's the biggest thing you have to look at when you're investing is what is the risk I'm taking with my money? What is the chance I won't get all my money and the interest and profit back? What is the chance I'll lose money? And if that, the closer that, that gets to zero, the closer your return gets to zero. So ideally you wanna find a very small amount of risk, but a great return, like 10 or 15%, but a very, very low chance of losing that money. Real estate tends to slide in there pretty nicely. Um, yeah, so hopefully that helps. So impressed with your business savvy, but more so with your character, especially keeping your word. Oh, thanks Terry, appreciate that. Quinton says, how would you personally invest 20 to $40,000 right now? Not asking professional advice, just what you would do. Uh, Quinton, I'd probably lend it out, to be honest, especially if I was working a full-time job and I was in a position where I didn't want to take on an active real estate investment project. Like if I didn't want to manage a project, I'd probably just lend it out as a first or second mortgage, probably a second mortgage, up to 80% loan to value. So that the person I'm lending to still has 20% of the value of the property and a down payment to lose before I lose anything. So they have to lose everything before I even lose a dollar. So that's a pretty safe investment, I would say. Um, and so you can do second mortgage lending at like 15% in some cases. So that's probably what I do with money because 40 grand at 15% is $500 a month. So that's $500 a month in passive income on your 40 grand. That's nice and easy, requires no time. Maybe you can make a thousand a month investing in real estate, but you have to put time in. So might as well just work harder at a side hustle or your job, invest the difference. There's the next question. With all your experience you have, you could easily identify legal duplexes. How could someone identify you're buying a legal duplex turnkey property? The question's kind of confusing, but I think what you're saying is how do you determine if it's legal? Well, you call the city and see if it has a rental license in place and see if it is zoned, and not only zoned, but being used currently as a duplex. The city will tell you if it's a legal duplex or not. Um, so it definitely makes sense to buy turnkey if you don't understand how to make one, then you buy one that's already been done and you check to see if it's legal and you call the municipality. You can check and see if it's been, with a building permit, made into a duplex or if it was purpose-built that way. You can see if it has a rental license that's currently active and valid with a fire inspection. 
Next question. If you're forced to get a tattoo and had no way out, what would you do? Get the tattoo. <laughs> uh, what do you think is reasonably possible? ROI, if someone were to buy a turnkey, but then effectively self-manage. You could, I've seen some decent turnkey opportunities where you self-manage, you get a 25% return on your investment. So there's nothing wrong with, especially student rentals, you get some great returns on investment if you self-manage and you don't do any renovations at all. I've bought properties that required no renovation, just placed a good tenant, collected the cash flow. So I don't always renovate. You don't always have to renovate. Um, okay. What is your impression of East London? <laughs> EOA, East of Adelaide. Specifically houses near Kiwanis Park. Safe, good, investment for single family house or duplexes. Prices seem to be low for London. Well, Kiwanis Park isn't actually the worst part. There's, it's, it's actually better as far as like East, the worst pockets of East and South are not really very close to there. Um, so they're decent, but East of Adelaide. So anything East of Adelaide technically is lower than, in my opinion, the land values are lower. It's just not as desirable as like West or North London. There are pockets in West and North London that are the most valuable in the city. Um, so from a land perspective, they're not as valuable, hence you'll find a better deal, but you will have to deal with a lower quality class of tenant. That said, I have properties in East London. I have properties around where you're talking about. There's nothing wrong with some of these properties. That could be a great investment. Um, just make sure you do your homework and, and run your numbers because there are bad investments in there too. Oh, I, I misread that Quentin. I'll get to that one last. That'll be my last question. I think should I get to there and ended. I lost my spot. Okay. Uh, good investment for single family house or duplex. I mean, depends what you're investing for. If you're investing for cash flow, for certain, you're investing for appreciation. I don't know. I don't know if it'll do better from an appreciation perspective than say North or West London. It's not as desirable of a place to live. It is a price conscious, I guess. So long-term, I do think the more price conscious properties will do better as a percentage. So the $250,000 house in London, Ontario will appreciate faster than the $600,000 house or $500,000 house in London, Ontario. And crazy enough, the average house in London is almost, it's like 480 something thousand. It's inching up to almost $500,000. So it's getting pretty crazy here. Uh, I still can, like, we just have a property on MLS right now for 249 on Steadwell. I think it just sold. So like properties go up all the time for like 230, 240, 250. And this one didn't even need work. It was like a four bedroom, two bath, detached house in East London and not a great area, but had a decent, you know, a decent enough prospect. So this, those kinds of properties, I think that this, the sub 300,000 properties are going to disappear long-term from an affordability perspective, where can you find a detached house for under $300,000 in London? It's becoming less and less of a thing. Tesla, <laughs> it says Tesla baby. Yeah, Tesla is, uh, I, love, I love the vehicle. When it comes down in costs, I'll definitely get one. But uh, right now, just the depreciation curve on a Tesla is too steep. So you're losing about, if you bought a brand new Tesla, you lose about $1,000 a month in depreciation alone. That's not including the cost of ownership, you know, whatever else happens, just depreciation in value. So that's the toughest part of an electric vehicle is the depreciation kills you. Uh, if you bought it out in cash, it was $1,000 a month in depreciation on average. So that's kind of scary. Um, with buying a, a new car in general, you get a lot of depreciation. And electric cars depreciate a little bit faster. Now the Tesla does the best in its class, but um, yeah. I read that since the US declared independence, the real estate market has appreciated at a 3% annual average. The last decade has been bananas. Fact, total fact. Trevor says that profit sharing aligns values. That's why CEOs are so heavily compensated in a company's stock. Agree. I think that everyone should be paid for performance. I think trading time for money in and of itself isn't the right way for anyone to do business in a capitalist society. Just because you contribute your time doesn't mean it adds any value. If you stand on a site as a construction guy and sweep a broom back and forth in the exact same spot, you've added no value. You've given eight hours of your time. It might've been laborious, but you did nothing for the value of the project. You've, you've added no value for the owner who has to now pay you. Now, cleaning up is important on a site, but I'm just saying if you sweep the same spot, you did like literally nothing, something that wasn't valuable. Or imagine someone, and this happens a lot, a contractor spends time cleaning a carpet. They spend like, they hire a guy for like 10 hours to clean all the carpets. And then they realize, oh, 
I'm changing the carpets out. And they just wasted like 10 hours of labor. That happens all the time on construction sites because of miscommunications or whatever else. That happens all the time. That inefficiency, I hate it. And so that's why I like pay for performance myself personally. I should practice more of what I preach, eh, guys? What's going on, Mike? How's the family? Brent, uh, very good. Family's doing uh, doing great. They're actually not here tonight. They're at my uh, my in-laws' house, and they live on the beach, so they've got a nice uh, or one house back from the beach. They're enjoying the the beach probably tonight, and I'm enjoying a night to work. <laughs> Harriet says, "Couldn't you make the argument that just working overtime and dumping into the stock market will generate more return long-term than spending that money instead of managing real estate deals to get a higher ROI?" Harriet, that. Yeah, that's a great argument. There are many situations where if you're paid well, that's the case. If you make more than $40 an hour, that's probably the case. However, there are a lot of people who make $20 an hour. They, make, they have a $45,000 a year salary, in which case real estate is a great side hustle and it is a great opportunity to dump those extra hours after your full-time job to reach fire. And so, yeah, if you're a doctor or a dentist or you make 150 grand a year as a consultant, don't get into active real estate investment. This market has rewarded people for real estate more than it should. On average, when we're not in a 20% a year appreciation cycle, uh, you won't do that well in real estate and it won't yield a better return than say making hundred dollars an hour doing something else. So yeah, I mean like in a more flat, normalized real estate market, like call it 2012 in London, 2010 in London, 2011 in London, 2009 in London, 2008 in London, back 50 years, every single year pretty much, other than like the last four years. Um, in London, You'd have been better off just doing coaching calls on hundred bucks an hour if you had like skills you could coach someone through renovations than actually doing the renovations yourself on a real estate project. Um, so yeah, that is a good observation. I like that. OT is taxed generally at a high time and trading time for money. Why not use that time to come up with a profitable hobby that can generate scalable income? True. True. Uh, I agree. The thing about overtime is yeah, is taxed less favorably. Capital gains created through owning a property for 10 years, that's taxed more favorably. You're taxed at half of a half. Worst case scenario, you pay 25% tax on your capital gain, whereas your overtime income could be 50% tax rate. So yeah. Uh, next question. I'm gonna go try to go rapid fire here so I can get some food. Refinancing my mortgage, what rates are you seeing currently? Ratespy.ca or RateHub. Ratespy is my favorite. One offered 1.91% for five-year fix. That's a great rate. You should take that. Um, the difference is probably worth your time. How do you deal with looking younger than you are? Is that a pro or con or context-based? You know what I do, Raz? I grow a freaking soul patch. No, um, <laughs> I just look young. And so what I try to do is, uh, you know, dress in a certain way. Like if, I, if I'm trying to look older, I'll put on a suit. Uh, facial hair is key. Like I keep a, a little bit of stubble at all times. I purposely don't shave every day because if I did, I would look even younger. So I try to look as old as I possibly can. That's been something for me that's been uh, been key. I find with the longer hair, I look older. And so that's been something that I've been doing. Um, yeah, facial hair has been a big one that helps um, with people respecting you. Because if I shave clean and I cut my hair clean, I look like I'm 19 and I'm like almost 28. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge, I guess. Contractors don't respect you. You enter a room, realtors don't. Uh, I go to answer my door here at my house and most of the time they say, are your parents home? Like I very rarely, I'm taken as the owner of my own house. I'm very rarely taken as someone who would own real estate, right? So it's, sometimes that works to my advantage, but very seldom. Most of the time it works against me. Sucks. Uh, next question. In the middle of a refi, 3.25 to 2.25, paid 400K to keep my terms the same, 22 years left. Uh, or $400. Okay, that was 400k at first. That's not too bad. Um, it's decent. You went down in interest rates. That's a win. How do you go about doing a private third mortgage? Or th you said third, second in one. So I think you meant second. Um, you go about, you just get a lawyer to do up the documents and register against title. So it'd be easy enough. You could send her a commitment letter, one or two pages, get them to sign it, and then send that to your lawyer. They pay your legal costs in most cases, and you register on title done. They pay you payments. If they don't, you seize title of the property and you sell it and you get your money back and you charge them enough in fees that they lose a lot of their down payment as punishment. So you get to collect your return. 
Hopefully they don't default. Desmond says, Airbnb plans to file for an IPO this month. Would you invest? Mm, no, probably not. I like Airbnb, but I wouldn't invest in an IPO. Bruno says, hi Mike. Are there any companies that lend money without showing up on your credit report? I'm looking to borrow a down payment for a really short term and buy one property. Uh, sometimes private mortgages don't show up depending on how the lawyer registers. I've seen it not show up for a while, uh, if not at all. So private borrowing is the only way that I know. Everything else shows up on your credit report. Now, I guess if you borrow from your line of credit, in theory, it takes like a month or two weeks for it to report. So you might get a week or two uh, buffer there. I don't know. I wouldn't bet on that. Probably just borrow privately. Wow, Brent, is that big five or other? Bruno says, then pay back the loan with my unsecured line of credit. Good idea. Quentin says, sorry, you read it wrong. You were forced to get a tattoo. What ta What would you get tattooed on you? Uh, okay, I did read it wrong. So <laughs> what would I get tattooed on me? Probably my kids, to be honest. Um, something to do with my daughters. Uh, my, my family's my number one, so something with my kids. Something that's permanent. That would, like, I'll always love my kids forever, and I'll always want to support them, no matter what they do, no matter where they go in their life. So that'd be something I, I would do. Something permanent. Brent said, what do you mean big five? He means big five banks. Understanding VA is U.S. military loans, so okay. Greg says you've mentioned private lending a few times. Where would you recommend someone start if they have no contacts or idea how to go about it? Talk to some mortgage brokers. They probably know some people who are looking for some private financing. It's a good place to start. Brent says, "Gotcha." Okay, they're talking to each other about rates in the U.S. and Canada. Thanks for your time, Mike. Enjoy your steak. Thank you, Trevor. Enjoy your steak and pasta. Thanks for the info. Thank you, everyone. Oh, Andrew's got one more question. Hey, Mike, please discuss private deal pipelines. The MLS deals are brutal. Yes, the private deal pipeline is also brutal from a time investment perspective. It's very hard to get to a point of proficiency where your time invested is actually yielding you a good result. In many cases, you'll waste so much time trying to procure the private market deals that you could just have spent that time buying a decent deal on MLS and get the same return. All right, everyone, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm starved. I need to eat my first meal of the day. I'm going to Break fast and have some breakfast. Um, thank you all so much for watching. The secret to unlocking a wealth through you is to spend less, earn more, and maximize returns. Those are the three levers. What you earn, what you spend, so then what you keep the difference is what, and what you invest it, that in and how that grows your net worth. So those are the three levers. That's it. That's how you become wealthy. And uh, I'll see you all in the comments, everyone. And if I missed your question for whatever reason, after this video releases, drop it in the comments and I'll respond for everyone to watch and everyone to see. Thank you all so much and I'll see you next week. Bye everyone.